Well, it is a privilege for me to be with you guys this morning uh, on this 27th of October already, as we're putting this year in the bank. Um, and for some of us who are church historians, we know that there is a date coming just a few days away that uh, is significant in the life of the Protestant church. And so uh, if you, it's not Halloween. Um, it is uh, a date that marks, as some have said, the, the tender that has started the fire of the Protestant Reformation 502 years ago. And so I would be, I would be remiss to not mention that uh, in the message, and then pastor would have to pull me aside later and give me a stern talking to. So uh, a little more on that in just a moment. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, the first letter to the Thessalonians. Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to read actually the first chapter. It's only 10 verses, uh, but it's going to set the context and the thrust for our message this morning. So if you will uh, turn there and I'll begin reading. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, the privilege and the benefit are ours to be called uh, your people, to be gathered out of the world and uh, into this assembly where we may offer up prayer and praise and honor and thanksgiving and ascribe all glory to you in the assembly of your people. That is to us a great privilege. And we thank you that we have by your word the identity uh, that you have given to your church as being those called not only out of the world, but into your son. And let us focus our hearts and minds and may this text uh, change your people, change us by degree of grace more into the image of Christ. And for those who find themselves outside of Christ, may this text not only convict the heart, but bring a renewed hope that was not there before. We ask that you bless 
the reading of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Martin Luther um, wrote seven truths or characteristics of the church, and I want to just start off by quickly going over those. It sets, uh, well, it gets me off the hook. I've mentioned the Protestant Reformation, and I've mentioned Martin Luther, so this is my little checkbox here. No. Seven truths of the church are this, the Word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, discipline, biblical offices, elders, pastors, deacons, worship, and the seventh one that Martin Luther put in his list was suffering. We often don't think of that as being a mark of the church, but let me read to you what Martin Luther said about suffering. He says the seventh is this, the Christian people are externally recognized by the possession of the sacred cross. They must endure every misfortune and persecution, all kinds of trials and evil from the devil, the world, and the flesh." End quote. Martin Luther knew that the servant would not be greater than the master. And so it is as God's people, we see Jesus as our master, and He suffered and was ultimately glorified. And we, as, as His students, as His servants, we too face a certain amount of suffering in the Christian life. And it is in this context that we have this letter that Paul has written to those believers in the church of the Thessalonians. We come to the message this morning... Um, and it follows a great series that we just closed up. If you were with us last Sunday, it was the last message of a series in the book of Revelation. The first three chapters, uh, Pastors Phil and Cameron uh, pointed our eyes and our hearts to the Scriptures. And we were confronted, we were challenged, we were encouraged by the blessed reading and the hearing of the words of that prophecy to self-examine as a church. I mean, there were five churches that received harsh words from the Lord, and there were two uh, that didn't. And so we, we want to know as a church, how should we act in this world? What should be true about us? And, and so in that, in that series, we examined our motivations, we examined our faithfulness, we were challenged to examine our doctrinal practices. And it is in light of that uh, series that the message we have today is entitled, The Truth About the Church. Now, let me say first off, this is not an exhaustive list of characteristics or truths about the church. Uh, we are focusing on 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through about 3. We may go a little further. But what we want to hear is we want to hear how Paul is characterizing this church, the church that he says he has nothing to correct them about. I don't know if you caught that. So we want to, we want to get into this and find out exactly what kind of church we ought to be. I do want to give us a little background into the letter. Uh, it is one of two letters written to the believers in Thessalonica, and it, both of them are complementary. One follows the other. Uh, in them contain many teachings with regard to the church and those who are a part of it. There's even teaching on the end of things, or eschatology, which seems to interest so many people in our time. In saying that, it is important to mention that the entirety, actually, of this first letter is eschatological in nature. And what is meant by that is that Paul is writing to those who are living in the last days or the latter times in the same way that the writer to the 
Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, says there, he says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. And so we understand that all Christians, us included, are living in these last days, and our salvation in Christ is in and of itself evidence of what is known to be the end-time reality. And so what Paul says to the saints here in Thessalonica is not just for them in the first century. What Paul is writing to them is relevant to us as well, as we still have a future hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what you will find in the five chapters of this very small letter is that at the end of every chapter is a future mention of the Lord Jesus Christ. So almost every chapter has an eschatological or an end times thrust as it points each reader to the hope that comes with believing in Jesus Christ. All right, so we understand this letter is, uh, is written. It's not just far removed from us. It is very relevant to us. And the letter was written because there was much persecution going on in that time. Um, a little background into the church before we unpack the verses. We want to note that this church was fairly young. It was planted by Paul. Um, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 17 and 18. In Acts chapter 17, you don't have to turn there now, and maybe you can mark that down and read that on your own a little bit later. But Paul was in Thessalonica. You might remember that he walks into a synagogue there and... Uh, we're told that as he, as he walks in, he begins proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the one that suffered and rose from the dead. We have recorded for us the fact that due to that preaching, there were Jews and there were Greeks and there were prominent women who came to believe in Christ. Yet at the same time, we're told that there were unbelieving Jews and they were jealous and filled with rage and they set out to capture Paul and his friends. And it is because of this that then Paul is whisked away to Berea. And when he gets to Berea, what does he do? Well, he opens up the word, and there he begins to preach Christ. Dead, buried, resurrected, ascended, and witnessed. And, well, the same unbelieving Jews from Thessalonica travel to Berea, and they try to garner a crowd of people to once again stir Paul and to arrest him. And what we see then is Paul is then whisked away to Athens. And guess what Paul does in Athens? He preaches Christ crucified and risen. And again, he receives trouble. So we see the purpose of this letter that Paul writes here to the saints. He is not only just defending himself, but he is, he is also defending the church. And so that's the backstory here. And, and there's a couple of things I'd like to point out. Um, if you have your Bible still, look at chapter 2 and verse 2, uh, just a, a way of some housekeeping for the letter. It's a wonderful letter written for our edification, and we know that when we see persecution coming for the sake of Christ, when we're sharing the gospel, uh, when we see it coming, we, we need to know that we need to be comforted in, in God because He has appointed all things. And so chapter 2 and verse 2, uh, Paul says, after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid such opposition. Go down to about verse 15, you'll find that same chapter here mentioning of 
those who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They not only please, they are not pleasing to God, but hostile to men. And then verse 16, um, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles. So there was, some, there was some tension there that was keeping these apostles from sharing the gospel with the Gentiles that they might be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And then if you go down to verse 1 in chapter 3, you'll also find here that there was a great tribulation for the cause of the gospel and suffering affliction. But I want you to pick up on what Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 3. He says, So that no one would be dis disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Paul says, something similar to what, what Peter says in 1 Peter, and that's that for this reason, to suffer for the cause of the gospel, we have been called. And so that's the background uh, of this letter and Paul's current position or condition, if you will. There is tribulation in his life, affliction, suffering, and it's also coming upon this church. The church is under assault from the same unbelieving Jews and Greeks in their time, and Paul is encouraging them to persevere in the faith. Um, it's littered throughout this entire letter. The apostle opens the letter by saying Silvanus and Timothy are with him, and I think this is significant in the thrust of his letter because what Paul is saying is that not only do these two brothers send their greeting as well, but they're also witnessing to what Paul is going to say, and, and Paul is calling here upon uh, the witness of two others as he, as he presents what he believes is good for the church going forward. By having this list, Paul is gently implying some authority by the presence of those witnesses. And this type of greeting is very customary for Paul uh, in all of his openings and his letters. And so in this way, uh, he is addressing them as he calls them the church of the Thessalonians. We want to look at the first three verses this morning, and in them we're going to see three truths about the church. These truths about the community or these called out ones, these people that belong to God, they are called out because God, as we know, has called them out of the world, yet they remain in the world. In fact, the word church in the very first verse is the Greek word ekklesia, and this would have had profound uh, impact upon those who were reading this because in light of the persecution of the unbelieving Jews that were coming upon the church, Paul says to these believers, you were the called out ones. Where the people of Israel in the Old Testament were the called out of the world and called into Israel where they were gathered and assembled. But now Paul says, this is true about the church. You were called out of the world and you were called unto the Son and you were called unto the Father. Paul then makes some true statements with regard to this congregation. And the three things that Paul says that we're going to look at that are true about the church are these. And if you're taking notes, this would be a good time to, unless you've already started writing, write these down. As the church of our Lord, number one, we are a church in both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in the Father and the Son. Number two, as the church of our Lord, we are a thankful and prayerful community of saints. 
as the church of our Lord. Number two, we are a thankful and prayerful community of saints. Number three, we have an inward grace of the heart that shows outward evidences of its effect. And I, I would like to point out that this is, this is something that bookends this entire letter. If you look at verse 3, Paul mentions three things. He says, uh, bearing in mind, or if you read the ESV, remembering your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you turn to the very last chapter of this letter, and you look at verse 8, Paul brings these three points of grace together again, and he says, For, but since we are of the day, speaking of those who are of night and we are of the day, he says for, verse 8, we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So this is a theme that really wraps up Paul's letter, and we're going to look at that uh, in depth in just a moment. All right, the first point comes from verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Paul is describing a church that is both in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not only the identity of the church and those who are in it, but this is also very true about our spiritual condition. You see, prior to being in Christ, we were in Adam, and in Adam all die. But now being brought into the church by the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are brought into Christ and therefore we live. So it is more than just an identity, it is a, it is a reality of our spiritual condition. And if you have followed here in, in the series of John that Pastor Phil wrapped up for us not long ago, uh, you heard that there's a, a very real aspect of God's people, how we are in the Son's hand. And if we are in the Son's hand, he says that then also we are in the Father's hand, and the Father is stronger than all in John chapter 10. And so there is a security aspect to being both in the Son and in the Father. And so it is with the entire church. Another thing about what Paul says here about this church being in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is that this would be offensive not only to the unbelieving Jews, not only to the unbelieving Greeks, but if we look at our time right now, the exclusivity of that statement is offensive to the world in which we live in today. You see, the world is always trying to define who the church is. The world is trying to redefine what the church's purpose is and who we gather for. The true church is distinguished from all other peoples of faith by the fact that we worship the one true God. God, one in being, three in persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul says down in verse 9 of chapter 1, recalling of how these dear ones had once been followers of idols, but now have turned to worship and serve the true God. Uh, he says this very clearly. And I want us to think about that. If the scriptures tell us that we serve the true and living God, then that means what? That all other objects of worship are false. The world does not like that truth. 
If we worship the one true and living God, then all other objects of worship are dead because our God is living. And that is a very exclusive message that the world hates. And then Paul, in verse 1, he asks the church to receive from the living and true God two things, grace and peace. Now, we all need to hear this. No one will receive grace apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no grace outside of Jesus. Now, of course, some people might be thinking, well, now, Brandon, we know the Scriptures tell us that God causes the sun to beat upon both the just and the unjust, and that He allows the rain to fall on both the godly and the wicked. And those things are certainly true. But I want us to understand that the creative aspects of God's goodness are not the same as His grace. And that is not what Paul is talking about here. He's not saying to the church, grace to you because the sun and the rain. He is speaking specifically about the work of salvation of Jesus Christ that comes into the hearts of the saints. Grace and peace for the saints... He is talking about that grace and peace that alone produces faith in Christ. And Paul is talking about the received blessing through that relationship that we have with Christ, our Savior. Those who have forgiveness of sin. It is not only the believer who, or it is only the believer who has justification and redemption and sanctification. It is only the saints that have real joy and real peace and real assurance of eternal life. So if you do not have the Son, know that you have none of these either. This is a biblical truth, one that the whole world hates, and they particularly hate it when this truth is preached. The problem for the world is that they proclaim what they wish Jesus had been, but we proclaim what Jesus reveals Himself to be. Jesus, it was Himself who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Me. This is the offensive message of exclusivity, which means that the gospel of Jesus Christ excludes. It does not permit all things. Or in other words, it restricts entry into heaven in a very specific way through Christ alone. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. This is not something that is just specific to Paul. It's not something that was first spoken of by Jesus, but it is also followed upon by the Apostle John. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. John says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. These are the inspired and inerrant words of God. And this world cannot take that truth. It is because of this that so many are against Christianity. It is because of this that there exists a tension that is visible anytime you mention the name of Jesus in a public setting. This is also the exact reason why so many are, temp are attempting to take away this truth 
They're attempting to change Christianity to be all-inclusive. They do this because they're either ignorant of Scripture or because they want not the Jesus who has revealed himself by the Scriptures, but what they want is a Jesus, a wished-for Jesus, the Jesus they wish had come. And this was true about the Jews in the time of Paul. They had an idea of a Messiah that they wanted to come. It wasn't one who would come as a lowly servant. It wasn't one who would come uh, to uh, sit with sinners and publicans. It wasn't one who had an open message to the Greeks. It wasn't one who could be arrested. It wasn't one who could be tortured and tried in a mock trial. It wasn't a Messiah that would suffer the death upon a cross. This was, the, this was not the Messiah that the Jews had wished for, but this was the Messiah that God had sent. You'll remember in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said this about Himself and about those who will follow Him. He said, Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads to life. Well, the world says, well, Jesus, we, we don't like that message. Let's do some construction work on that gate. Let's, let's open it up. That narrow way that's kind of hard, now let's, let's get the bulldozers out and let's, let's pave it nice and smooth and broad. But Jesus says, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many go in that way. But straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there are that find it. So this is, the, this is the message that we have. The truth about the church is this, and the truth about what Paul writes is this. We have a message that is mostly going to be rejected, and that's okay, because it is still the means by which God has called people unto Himself, the preaching of His Word, the sharing of Jesus Christ. And I don't want to, I don't want to put a weight upon you to think, well, then, I really don't like persecution. I, I'll just sit quietly in church on Sunday and, and pass the time. I don't want you to feel that either because there is hope in the presence of Christ and in His Spirit to be with you when you preach the gospel. That is the way in which God has caused people to believe, is by the hearing of His Word. We know that this was hard for the disciples. You will remember that uh, Jesus was speaking to them, and they had many difficulties with the things He was saying. What? He wants us to eat His flesh? Did He just say He wants us to drink His blood? I mean, that's what we just did here as, a, as not only a commemoration, but a, a service, a work of divine service to us as it encourages us and causes us to reflect not only upon what God has done through His Son, but what He will do in the future, as Pastor Phil said. It is not just a past, it's a future and a present reality for us. But this was difficult for the disciples to believe in their time. When Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father grants it, that was the last straw. You will remember that many of those, those who followed him, they left to follow him no more. John chapter 6. True Christianity and the gospel are defined by the word of God and defensive to those that are perishing. Any other Christianity is a fake religion. If the world accepts and tolerates a form of Christianity, then you can bet that it is not the faith that comes through Christ and the Christ of the Bible. This is why Jesus says in Luke 9.26, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory. 
Let us not be ashamed of the words of the Lord. Let us boldly stand up for the truth and for the word. But let us do so in gentleness and reverence. Let us not follow and splash in the pond of ignorance like so many do in our time. But let us go with the word of God as we see men and women and children around us perishing. Let us throw the lifeline of the gospel, the words of Christ, no matter how imperfectly we share it. Let us share it gently and in kindness, for it is the only thing that can save. I hope this governs our mind as we go forward, not just in this message, but as we leave from here, uh, that we have this idea that we're not doing good to our neighbor by sugarcoating the Jesus of the Bible. We're not doing good by presenting a Christ who doesn't reveal himself the way he does from the scriptures. In fact, what we're doing is we're causing them to continue in something far worse than unbelief because they're believing in a Jesus that does not exist. Let us preach the Jesus of the Bible. It is so important that we share the divine Son of God, the Christ who suffered and died for the sins of his people, who raised from the dead, was witnessed by the biblical account of hundreds, and ascended to take his rightful seat at the right hand of God the Father, just as the Apostle Paul presented him. It is also important that we, knowing and sharing this Jesus, then set out to allow the Lord to do His work. You see, it is God who gives ears to hear. It is God who gives eyes to see, and it is God who softens the heart to receive the spoken gospel. It is He who gathers the church and separates us from the world unto Himself. This, beloved, is the problem that the world and so many in it have with biblical Christianity. The church is in God the Father and in Christ Jesus our Lord by the will and the work of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God alone. Not by the devices and the wisdom of men to attract bodies into a building, but by the grace and the power of God to raise dead sinners to life and then set them apart for himself in tension with the world around them. But give them comfort and hope by his spirit that they may endure. This was the message that we heard through the series in Revelation. There were churches that did not overcome. There were churches that did not endure. There were churches that compromised the message of the gospel. There was church, a church that had forgotten their first love. It is important that we keep that perspective. Men do not get to cherry pick the Jesus that they want to follow. Men get the Jesus that has come from the Father who reveals himself in Scripture. And that is what Paul reasoned in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. He walked into a synagogue amongst those who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and he preached to them that Jesus was the Messiah. May we also, out of our love for God, and want to see him get the praise and honor and glory that he deserves, let us speak in the same manner as Paul. For we will need this courage, brethren. We will need this courage in the days, in the weeks, in the months, and dare I say, in the years that come. We need to have the same unashamed boldness and confidence in the Lord. Amen? So Paul writes that the church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot have one without the other. 
And let us listen here. Paul says, You are the church, the called out ones of the Thessalonians, in and by the power of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And let us not forget that Paul, in the midst of his tribulation, listen to how he demonstrates what ought to be the response in such trying and difficult times. What ought to be the response of the church in trying and difficult times? How do we respond to Him after we have been made such benefits, beneficiary recipients of His grace? We are told that the stirred-up response of the church should be that of thankfulness. It should be that of thankfulness and a life dedicated and devoted to prayer. So our second point comes from the next two verses. The Apostle Paul writes this. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind the work of faith, the labor of love, and steadfastness of your hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. So here's the second point. As the church of our Lord... We are to be a thankful and a prayerful people. Thinking of all of us in this room, I am immediately impressed upon the things that we all have to be thankful for, every last one of us. Thankful for our redemption, thankful for a new life in Christ, thankful of a God who sent His Son to show His love for us before we ever loved Him. I speak from a pretty good record of my own uh, unworthiness as I know my own heart, yet for His glory, He chose to love a wretch like us. Not only that, but we are to be continually thankful to God for His continued grace that not only saves us, but upholds us. It is the power by which we are upheld. Thankful for the privilege to turn to Him in communion as we are permitted to approach the throne of God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ in prayer and refuge. Thankful that we know that He indeed hears our prayers. And also that He demonstrates to us time and time again that not only does He hear our prayers, but He answers them. And this is why Paul gives thanks to God for the saints. It is that God has done all of this in Christ for them, not that they have done anything for the Lord. It is this peace that God gives us through His grace and what the Father has done for us in Christ. Let us self-examine. Does this thankfulness that we see described here, does it describe me? Are we always giving thanks to God? And if not, why not? I think the Apostle provides for us an answer that's going to be very helpful for us as we consider this point. Paul says that he gives thanks for them constantly remembering their work. Work of what? Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. There is a key word here that I would like for you to pick up on, maybe highlight Uh, The NASB, the NASB uses these words, constantly bearing in mind. I like that because the ESV uses one word. I like the depth of the NASB. 
The, e- the ESV just says remembering, and, and sometimes that doesn't have a depth to it that we need, we need. But the NASB kind of impresses upon us that we need to be constantly bearing in mind what? I want us to connect this. Thankfulness arises out of reflection. Thankfulness arises out of reflection. Beloved, we will not be a thankful people if we are not a people of reflection. We will not have hearts of thankfulness if we do not practice reflecting or remembering or constantly bearing in mind the things that God has done. We need to primarily not only just focus on the redemptive work that He has done through Christ, but also the things that flow out of that redemptive work. Be mindful of our sanctification. Be mindful of our, our ability to repent. Be mindful of the hope that is before us. Be mindful of these things as gifts and be thankful. Perhaps this is the problem with the church today, is that we just do not take time to reflect but rather we're swept up in the instant input of the world. We're consumed by the immediate reward and gratification mindset that presses in from uh, all around us. This even affects our prayer life. And prayer is to be the channel by which we express our thanksgiving to God. This affects our understanding of what it means to be overcoming. It dilutes our understanding and the practice of perseverance. All of these things are the divine work in us, and are inseparable from the life of every Christian. Remembering. So as we come together on this Lord's Day, are we aware of the things that happened to us that caused us to be here in the first place? Think of how odd it is that there's a room of 40, maybe 50 people in the building who've come to a place to gather to... uh, Welcome and and greet one another in brotherly love, to sit with one another, uh, to stand and sing hymns, to offer up prayers one for another, and to hear somebody stand in front of a a pulpit and, and preach or speak the words of God. How different is that from everything else that is occurring outside of this building? Something happened to you folks to cause you to come here today. And that is something we should remember. As we gather for the Lord's Supper, understanding the significance of the words when Jesus said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. What are we to remember? The works of Jesus Christ on our behalf, the promises of God and Jesus that are both yes and amen. Paul seems to move us to be thankful for something else that he is reflecting upon. It's not just the work of God in Christ Jesus. It's not just the many benefits and promises that we find in Christ that are yes in Him. But he is also reflecting and thankful upon what God has done in His brethren. As he writes to these saints, he is considering deeply. He is reflecting and remembering their work of faith. Do we think about and consider deeply the answer to our prayers as we see them become realities in the lives of those whom we know that have come to know and believe and trust in Christ? Our family, our neighbors, our friends, whom we have prayed for and 
God, through Christ and His kindness, had answered that prayer and led them to repentance, gifting them faith. Do we remember to be thankful for those works in our, in our brothers and sisters? So another aspect of the church that we learn from Paul here in verse 3 is that we not only should remember these things and reflect upon them, cultivating a heart of thanksgiving toward God, but what we learn as the church is that we should also tell our brothers and sisters of the grace that we see at work in them. When we tell them of the visual evidences of the grace of God that we see in their lives, it encourages them and reminds them that God is at work in them. We do this with our children, right? Our children do something well. We, we recognize that. We encourage them. We, we tell them that we see them do well. We do it with employees. Why do we do that? Because we know it stirs them to do it more. And so as we, as we fellowship, as we come together, never be slack in taking the time to recognize the grace of God at work in His people. That you may say to a brother, I thank God for your faithfulness. I thank God for your acts of love. You know, I thank God that you have such a, an eye on the hope of the coming of Jesus Christ that it stirs me to have that hope as well. Let us never be, take pause, but be quick to recognize that as we see it in the hearts of our brothers and sisters. And I think this is what Paul intends to do as he tells the saints that he is thankful and we don't want to miss the direction of Paul's thankfulness. He doesn't say to the saints, I'm thankful to you for all the good works that you've done. Paul says, I'm thankful to God. That's the direction of his thankfulness. Thankful for God that you, you do these good works of faith. After all, God is the giver of the grace. We see in Philippians chapter 2, it is God who works both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7 where Paul is correcting the believers there against being puffed up. He says, what do you have that you have not received? If you have then received it, why do you boast as if you have not received anything? For what you have, you have been a recipient of. We need to constantly remind ourselves to protect against ourselves that all that we have, we have received by God's grace. Be diligent in our thanksgiving to God, thanking Him for the gift of His grace. And while, we are, while our thanksgiving and our praise are realities for us in the church, they are not sufficient in and of themselves. The apostle tells us there is something else we need to be doing. We need to be thankful, and we need to be contemplating upon the things that God has done, but we need to be prayerful. We need to be praying often. It is through prayer that we show that we are thankful to God. In fact, the grace to pray is something that we ought to be thankful for in and of itself. The truth that we have access to the Father through the Son by the Spirit is such a tremendous gift of grace to us as believers that we should be thankful for that and what a blessing we have in that. A lavish gift of the Savior that we have just to be able to come in prayer. It is only those that know the Father in Jesus Christ that have the Spirit who can access Him in prayer, only His children, those whom He set His grace upon. So if 
you are a prayerful person, if you find yourself under the pressures of the realities of the goodness of Christ, bearing under the weight of your own sin, and it causes you to cry out to God in prayer for His mercy, then you have received grace to do that. That is a work of God in you to do that. Paul says in this very letter in chapter 5, he says, pray only on Sundays. No, he says, pray without ceasing. Dear ones, when we hear that, let us not think that we're to go home from this building and crawl into our closet and spend every minute of every hour of every day in prayer, though I should probably be doing that. (laughs) That is not what Paul means when he says, pray without ceasing. But what Paul does mean is that as saints, as God's people, we are to be devoted to prayer, daily and thoughtful prayer that comes from a reflection upon God's Word, that comes from a reflection upon His work in each of us. We are to pray even about our sin. When we confess in prayer our sin, what happens? It causes us to reflect, to search our hearts And to say to God, your word is true and right about my sin. This is confession. It means literally to speak words after the Spirit, to agree with what God says, and then be restored. Jesus said this in the the model prayer to the Father, forgive us our sins. We are to do, reflect on the truth, and yet... Remembering that as the church, we are the ones that God sent His Son to die for, and in doing so, He paid the price for those sins. Those sins no longer hang over us or rule over us or condemn us, but the Spirit at work in us causes us to recognize those sins. Many people I speak to say, you know, I was fine before I was a Christian. (laughs) I was. I And I hear Paul say, I didn't know what covetous was until the law said, don't do it. But before I was a Christian, I never thought about my sin. And now I think about it all the time. I might not be saved. All I think about is my sin. And I say, no, that's that's a good sign that you probably are saved. Because you never gave second thought to the things that you did that offended God before. So we as God's people, we have this... We have this gift to offer up in our prayers a confession of our sin to God. Let us meditate upon that, um, on the blessings of God's Word promised that He will hear our prayers, promised that He will answer them according to His good and acceptable and perfect will. This is another truth that the world despises, brethren. The truth that the church and its Community of redeemed people are the only ones that have access to the Father because of the work of Christ. This is offensive to the world. Unbelievers and the world, they don't don't worry about what God thinks about what they're doing. They worry about the things of the world. They, They despair in sorrow and wisdom. They have none. They look to their own arms, their own will, their own might, their own influence to get for themselves what they require in this world. 
That's far different from the people of God. We go to God. We are content with what He has given us. We, we recognize when we begin to slip into greed. We recognize when we begin to take on the pressures of the world. And, and by His grace, He leads us to confess those things. And we depend upon Him once again. You see, we are restored in that way. The world is not restored in that way. They wallow in sorrow. No hope. No love. And every bit of good work that they think they do is still tainted. Tainted with sin. But we cast all of our sorrow, all of our fear, all of our worries and cares upon God, knowing that He will give us all that we need to get through those very same things. For the Christian, Christ is our Redeemer and our Sustainer, our Provider, and by His Spirit, our Comforter. He is our Protector, and because of this, the Father takes care of us. For what earthly father doesn't do good for his children, how much more than our Heavenly Father. Let us go quickly to prayer, and not only for our need, but for the needs of our brothers and sisters, for this is our duty. Practice reflection before prayer, and you will be thankful. Now, what was Paul's reason for reflection and thankfulness in prayer? We find it in verse 3. The reason for Paul's thankfulness and reflection was the work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This brings us to our third and final point. The truth about the church of our Lord is that its members have an inward grace that reflects an outward evidence. This evidence cannot help but show forth in its effects. This was true about the church of the Thessalonians. It was true about Paul, and so it will be true about you and I. In fact, look down at verses 4 through 7 of chapter 1 in 1 Thessalonians. Paul says in 4 through 7, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit. The truth about the members of the church is that they have this inward work of grace that by necessity flows out and is visible in its effects. Now, I don't want us to miss this. To the saints of God belong the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit that we heard about already that works in us the will of God to do the things that are good and for His good pleasure. It is based on the repeated truth throughout the New Testament that the saints indwelled, the indwelled people of God, the the believer's heart cannot help but show forth the fruit of what God has put in it. And if we have the very Spirit of Christ in us by the receiving of the gospel, then that power by God will produce in us these three graces. They are faith, love, and hope. We are recipients of faith as this 
author, Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, that is faith, but also to suffer for His sake. There's that connection again, faith and suffering. The Bible promises a current suffering and a future glory for the believer. Now we could spend a lot of time on this, and I'm sure that as the months or weeks go by, I, I happen to have a little insight onto perhaps where Pastor is going to be going next with uh, his messages, and, and we're going to be very well fed through the book that he's chosen, uh, unless that changes. But the truth about the church is that we are, we are not promised reprieve from tribulation at any point. Only the sustaining and enduring power of God through faith to overcome all forms of that tribulation and that suffering that we will be subjected to. Now, due to the work of God in us through faith, a work that, produces, a work that is produced must come forth from us. Faith is the root of grace that produces the work, which is the fruit. Let me say that again simply. Faith is the root, work is the fruit. We want to be very careful not to get those mixed around. There are many religious systems in the world that teach that work is the root and that faith is the fruit. That's, that's backwards. We want to recognize that it is faith that comes that produces the good work on the tree of life, in the tree of the grace of God, if you will. The reality is that if you have faith, it is because of God's grace, and that produces in you evidence. It is the Spirit that purifies our hearts, which enable us to exercise faith before God and men. This is the work of faith that Paul is speaking about. Not just an interior work of intellectual knowledge of Christ, but a faith that trusts and rests in Him for salvation. True and saving faith that never produces any works is a dead faith. If you claim to have true and saving faith and no work is flowing from that, it is a dead faith. These hearers didn't just become uh, hearers of God, but Paul says they became imitators of Christ. If you have experienced Christ, you cannot help but display the effects of that experience in your life. Notice that faith is the first in these triad graces, faith, love, and hope. It is true about the church that if we do not have faith, then we cannot have love and we cannot have hope. Faith is the logical preceding grace that comes from the work of God. You cannot have one of these three and not the other two. And so Paul not only commends these dear ones for their faith, but also he commends them for their imitation of love. They imitated Christ by their continual and unwavering love for God and for the church in the face of tribulation and suffering. As the outside pressures from the unbelieving world worked against this church in every direction, it was the Jews, it was the Greeks, it was every unbeliever in the community outside pressing, pressing in upon this church, they did not cease to display these truths. And here's another little, you can tag this on as a fourth fruit, if you will. Holiness. 
Brethren, there is no tribulation, there is no suffering, there is no trial that will excuse you from practicing holiness. In the midst of some of the most harsh treatment, we are to be imitators of Christ in remembering that though He was mocked, though He was reviled, He did not revile back. That is a difficult truth, but a necessary truth for God's people to remember. Our work of faith by God's grace will produce in us a love. It sets hope before us, but in the middle between that faith and that hope is love and the practice of holiness. So you could call it 2.3 if you want. Be imitators of Christ, wavering only in the sense that we go from one degree of His image to the next, not wavering away from that image or falling away. Here's another truth we need to hear in our day. You cannot say that you love God and not love His church. If you have received by grace the faith that you profess, you cannot be at home on the Lord's day. You cannot skip the assembly of God's people for football. I threw that in there because I heard that earlier. (laughs) You cannot be on your couch declaring your love for God and His church while you're flipping through channels on the Lord's day. Because to love God is to come and to worship God. And for the good of His people, He has appointed the first day of the week to assemble as a redeemed community in the world to worship Him together. So you cannot say that you love the church if you willfully neglect to come and join in worship with your brothers and sisters. You cannot be a blessing to them while you stay at home. We labor in love together as a gathered people. We exercise that love in numerous ways as we assemble and as we are bound together, even outside of this assembly. But it is this time that we are to come together and to receive from God divine service. You know, they used to call Sunday, they didn't call it church, they used to say it was divine service day. Puritans used this term a lot because they didn't see what they were doing by gathering for God. They saw what God did in them as they gathered to worship God. It was a service being done to them. And understand then, even as we come and partake of the Lord's table, we do that in some sense serving one another as we pass the tray, right? As we, as we partake, we are, we are literally illustrating the gospel in baptism, the sacrament of baptism. We are illustrating the gospel each time we partake of the Lord's Supper, and it encourages one another. And how can you do that? I'm not talking about being sick and home. I'm talking about willfully being absent in the assembly of God's people. Understand then that the truth about the church is that when you are willfully absent, you're showing a very lack of the love in which Paul is speaking of here. Finally, Paul says that he was thankful for the steadfastness of hope in Christ. And we want to notice this. Hope is always the last grace in the triad. And it is not without a purpose. Hope is the last because it is the end all of all graces. We begin the Christian life with faith. We grow continually in the Christian life in love, 
practicing holiness, seeking peace with all men. And we end this life in hope. A hope that causes us to be able to suffer much in this world. A hope that is the sure expectation of the eternal life that awaits us at the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This should give great help to us as we endure these times and end uh, and end time trials as we are uh, even today and, and what trials are promised for tomorrow. For we have a hope promised, but yet not complete. A hope that is seated in the Christ of the gospel as He is the end of all promises of God and the true and faithful deliverer of His people. Paul is telling these saints in the church of Thessalonica that this faith, this love, and this hope will be enough to carry them along through any and every form of tribulation. These three graces stir them to persevere. And this is the truth about the church. May we turn daily to God in prayer, seeking the things that we have need of, that we may be able to overcome, that we may be able to persevere, that we may be able to press toward the goal of the prize of the upward calling of God in Jesus Christ. We have these graces of work and labor and steadfastness that Paul has mentioned as a sign of the Christian life. And here's the other truth about the Christian life, brothers and sisters. The Christian life is not an idle life. It's not a life of laziness. It is a a life marked for the working together to spread the gospel here on earth. Helping and defending one another and standing in the face of opposition and tribulation with the anchor of hope set before us in Christ Jesus. And if you are here today, or perhaps you're hearing this later, listening to it, might be a little bit easier for some of us if we've been sick, not that we're skipping for church, for football. Perhaps you're hearing this and after examining your life, maybe you've been in the church for years, perhaps, perhaps you've not been in the church. But considering yourself a Christian, And after examining and thinking of these three graces, this truth about the church, am I in God? Am I in the Son? Am I thankful? Am I prayerful? Am I reflecting upon God's work? Do I see the grace of God in my life, which produces faith, which produces love, which produces hope? Do I not see these in my life? Are these not true about me? Then by all accounts, the Scripture says you are outside of Christ if none of these are true. And this being the case, I say to you, without fail, unless you come to God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you will be judged. You will be found guilty based upon your own works. You will be condemned and sent to everlasting punishment. However, the good news of the gospel is this, that all those who trust in Christ believing in His finished work upon the cross, are for sure to be saved without any doubt, without any fail, and with every bit of hope. Trust in Jesus.